You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the spring of 1664, the future of Jamaica sailed across the Caribbean. That future was embodied in Sir Thomas Modiford. The ever-changing world of European politics had shifted drastically in the nine years of English occupation in Jamaica. Lord Protector Cromwell had died, the Stuart monarchy had been restored under King Charles II, and the Anglo-Spanish War that had seen Jamaica seized from Spain was over. The two nations were finally at peace. That peace, however, stood on an uncertain foundation. King Charles had been backed by many prominent Catholics in Europe in his bid for the throne, most notably the King of Spain. He secured that support largely with a promise to return Jamaica to the Spanish Empire. However, he didn't. He changed his mind, and there was little that Spain could do about it. You see, in England, with the Stuart monarchy so recently returned, the entire institution of monarchy was in question. The other European monarchs were hesitant to act against King Charles for fear of a return to that democratic Puritan parliamentary system. But that hesitation was very nearly overcome in 1661 and 1662 when Captain Mings sailed against the Spanish cities of Santiago and San Francisco de Campeche. The Spanish king and his ambassador in England flew into a rage over these attacks. You see, these raids had been officially sanctioned. The captains of all of the vessels had been carrying a royal commission and letters of marque. King Charles II saw clearly just how dangerous this situation was to England and to him personally. Very possibly facing a serious war if he didn't address this situation, he wrote personally to the acting governor of Jamaica, Sir Charles Littleton. He told the governor that the law was clear. These raids on Spanish territory were illegal in a time of peace, and in the eyes of God and the English court, well, they amounted to no more than piracy. The Stuart kings, all the way back to Charles I, had always been clear on exactly what a pirate was. They drew their definition from Marcus Tullius Cicero, the Roman orator from the time of Julius Caesar. Cicero called pirates, quote, Hostis humani generi, or in English, enemies of the human race. Now that's what pirates were, but exactly who were pirates was a lot more fluid of a question. Douglas R. Burgess Jr. writes in his history, The Pirate's Pact, quote, Kings may have employed the term piracy loosely, applying it ad hoc for political purposes, not unlike our present government's fungible definition of terrorism. 
End quote. That allegory between pirates and terrorists is fantastic. If you were to look at, for example, the Taliban, or certain Islamist rebel factions in the Syrian civil war, well, these groups were once allies to the United States until the political landscape changed. Now, these groups were terrorists, or hostis humani generi, enemies of the human race. King Charles saw things much the same way. He was happy to employ the buccaneers of Tortuga in defense of Jamaica until the politics in Europe forced his hand away from that. His letter to Littleton ordered a cessation of all piratical acts against the Spanish, an expulsion of the Brethren of the Coast from Jamaica, and greater circumspection in the issuing of letters of Mark. Littleton replied in a letter that I imagine Charles' counselors hesitated to show the king. Littleton refused to rein in the buccaneers. He would not recall Ming's or Mansvelt, and he would not cease issuing letters of Mark. His reasons were both personal and piratical. The buccaneer raids on Spanish shipping were making Littleton a wealthy man, to be sure, but they were also good for Jamaica. They brought gold and goods, things that the island desperately needed. But they brought, also, the most important factor in Jamaica's survival. They brought Jamaica a navy. The Jamaica station had only two or three Royal Naval frigates at any time. But Port Royal, well, it had such a glorious harbor. It had merchants that were willing to deal in pirated goods and more taverns per block than any other city in the world. And this attracted the pirates and buccaneers like flies to honey. At any time, that glorious harbor was filled with upwards of 500 vessels, anything from small barks and sloops to brigs, carrying hundreds of guns and thousands of violent men. All of these men were well-armed, battle-hardened, and hostile to the Spanish, willing to defend their home in Port Royal. In his reply to the king, Littleton argued that the buccaneers were essential to the survival of the colony. King Charles, however, didn't see it that way, and he wrote another letter. This letter, however, wasn't to Littleton. It was to another governor, the most powerful and influential man on Barbados, Sir Thomas Modiford. Modiford was a rich planter. He'd worked his way up the political ladder of Barbados, finally becoming the governor, and he was a factor for a group known as the Royal Adventurers, which was an English corporation that had a monopoly on slavery in the Caribbean. Charles gave the governor a new commission. He handed him the governorship of Jamaica. Modiford was tasked with developing Port Royal into a proper English colony, complete with all of the trappings of Caribbean life, including hundreds of new plantations. In order to accomplish this, Modiford sailed with his lieutenant governor, a man named Edward Morgan, who, as it happens, was Henry Morgan's uncle. He also had at least 700 planters and the thousands of African slaves and English indentured servants that came with them. Modiford was bringing not just men, but the entire slave-based plantation system with him. His first action upon arriving in Port Royal was to stop any further piratical raids from leaving the harbor. However, he was already too late. Only a few months prior, a fleet of buccaneer vessels under Captain Henry Morgan had sailed. Nobody knew exactly where they were going, but everybody knew that they were going to go ransack, plunder, and terrorize Spanish colonies somewhere in the Caribbean. This is episode number 18, Grenada. 
In December 1663, five vessels left Port Royal, carrying Captains Henry Morgan, William Jackman, John Morris, and David Martin, along with somewhere in the realm of 200 men. They sailed due west, along the same route that they had taken the previous spring, when they were returning from Ming's raid on Campeche. San Francisco de Campeche was a favorite target for buccaneers from the time of Diego Lucifer. It was a ripe prize on the west coast of the Yucatan Peninsula, but that wasn't the pirates' destination this time. Their first stop was in Cuba. They hoped to collect some wood and water and hopefully buy some supplies, but the small fleet was turned away. From Cuba, they sailed directly west to the Yucatan, and as soon as they reached land, they collected their wood and water. They rounded the peninsula and started heading south, where they entered the Bay of Campeche. The Bay of Campeche was a shallow stretch of sea that was filled with reefs and constantly shifting sandbanks that threatened to run any ship aground that wasn't wary. So the ships in Captain Morgan's fleet dropped sounding lines to test the depths, and they continued southwest along the coast. Occasionally, the buccaneers stopped at any village that was large enough to support a tavern. Now, these weren't exactly raids, per se. However, I don't imagine that a huge number of rough English buccaneers crowding into your tavern, eating up all of your stores, drinking up all of your wine, and fondling all of your serving girls were exactly pressed when it came time to collect the bill. There was a skirmish or two with Spanish patrols that they ran into, but the Spaniards retreated almost immediately, and the English continued due south. However, as they headed further south, they stopped going ashore and stayed further and further away from the coast. They had easily outrun any alarm that would have come from the northern Yucatan, but now as they neared their destination, they required surprise and stealth. They set watch for a telltale brown stripe in the crystal blue waters, made by silt from inland rivers that would be meeting the sea. They were looking for the second such stripe, and when they found it, Morgan ordered the fleet to make for the coast, where they anchored their ships and they rowed ashore. 107 men made for the mouth of the Grijalva River, which led directly to their destination, Via Hermosa. Via Hermosa was, and still is today, the capital of the province of Tabasco. It was at the time a rich city that hadn't seen privateers or pirates or really any foreign sails for a generation. But Via Hermosa wasn't intended to be Morgan's first stop. Three miles upriver, they found the village of Frontera. Frontera was an ancient enclave. It was a small trading town that predated the Spanish by centuries. The inhabitants there were natives, the descendants, or maybe the remnants, of the Maya. Now, when you picture Frontera, don't picture the great stone pyramids of the Maya that the Yucatan is so famous for. And don't picture the temples or sacrificial altars or monoliths. The Mayans hadn't built structures like that for at least 600 years before the Spanish arrived in the New World. When Hernan Cortes, the conquistador, finished up with the Aztec Empire up to the north, he marched south to the land of the Maya. But he didn't find the legendary empire. He found a fractured group of warring and feuding city-states that he conquered really with ease. It was actually near Fonterra that he found an altar that was covered in blood, deep in the jungle for human sacrifice. He had that altar destroyed. By the time Henry Morgan arrived in Fonterra, the Maya were a defeated people. The Spanish routinely took their strongest boys and their most beautiful girls from them. The 
Boy slaves worked at the most dangerous jobs that were deemed too deadly for valuable property. These were jobs like pearl diving that you could only do for so long before your body just gave out on you. You see, nobody would employ African slaves to do something that was definitely going to kill them, but you didn't have to pay for Indian slaves. The girls, if they were lucky and exceptionally beautiful, might be taken as a personal mistress for some local dignitary or another, but most of them, the unlucky ones, were sold into a sexual human trafficking ring that's on an unparalleled level. So, as you can imagine, when a group of strangely dressed, blonde-haired, odd-sounding men arrived and informed the natives in a broken Spanish that they intended to kill all of the masters in Via Hermosa, the natives were happy to help. This would have been a tense moment for the buccaneers. Nobody knew exactly how they would be received by the natives in the region, but Henry Morgan took a gamble, and that gamble paid off. The Mayans there told the captains that taking the river directly to Via Hermosa was out of the question. The river was lined by some settlements and many guard posts that would lose them the element of surprise. Now, in most cases, they would just go a mile or two inland and follow the river, but that was out of the question as well. The land for some 20 miles or more on either side of the river was impassable swamps, filled with deadly snakes, maddening caimans, and mosquitoes carrying malaria and other deadly diseases. But these mines were happy to provide guides to the buccaneers that would see them safely around the swamps and take them far from Spanish eyes. The trek wound up being more than 300 miles, but the company marched through the jungle of the Yucatan. They were taking a wide berth around the Spanish to avoid any possible settlements or Spanish patrols. Their trek mirrored and really collapsed that of Francis Drake across the Isthmus of Panama some 91 years before. At the end, they neared Via Hermosa, completely undetected. Stefan Talti writes, quote, Via Hermosa was many hundreds of miles away from the pirate haunts of Port Royal and Tortuga, and its citizens believed that the distance ensured their safety. Towns might see ten or twenty years of peace before a horde of buccaneers suddenly appeared on the horizon one day. Guards slept at their posts, the round shot, small cannonballs, for the cannons rusted in the soft night air until they'd no longer fit into the mouths of the guns. Keys to chests full of gunpowder hadn't been seen in a decade. Vigilance under the hot sun was a challenge few commanders could meet. So when Morgan's men burst into the town square, the Spanish defense collapsed. Morgan reported that he quickly took and plundered the village. The pirates searched the houses for plate and jewels, gathered a few hundred prisoners, and headed back to their ships. End quote. This was not a battle for the ages. But really, that's how Morgan and, honestly, pirates in any era wanted it. A sudden, frightful appearance followed by a quick surrender was just perfect. This is really, though, a testament to Henry Morgan as a military commander. Sun Tzu wrote in The Art of War, quote, Repetity is the essence of war. Take advantage of the enemy's unreadiness. Make your way by unexpected routes and attack unguarded spots, end quote. This is how many of history's greatest commanders strategized. This is... Genghis Khan marching through the Gobi Desert, or George Washington crossing the Delaware. Henry Morgan went well out of his way to surprise Via Hermosa, and he was rewarded with chests full of gold and silver and jewels. But Morgan, 
His luck wouldn't hold, and he wasn't prepared for every eventuality. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. They commandeered several river vessels to carry the men and their chests full of treasure back to their ships. However, when they got there, they found their ships waiting, but in the hands of more than 300 Spanish troops. Now, here we finally get the fight that was missing in Via Hermosa, but even still, it was one-sided. The Spanish were carrying those outdated and antique firearms... Well, the buccaneers were carrying some of the best muskets in the world. The buccaneers were crack shots who had been trained in raids on the Spanish, while the Spanish themselves had possibly never seen a pirate or any real enemy before. The buccaneers faced imprisonment or death if they failed in this battle behind enemy lines. However, the Spanish, well, they were in possession of five newly acquired pirate ships that they could use to escape should they fail. Which is exactly what happened. After a few volleys, the Spanish troops retreated back to the ships they had just taken from the English and sailed away on them. So the four captains found themselves deep in enemy territory. They had no food or drink, but they were carrying chests of treasure, and they had only a few small river craft, not even remotely suitable for getting them home. These were little more than open canoes that may have had a single sail on them. And here, once again, Henry Morgan shows his quality as a commander. These were hardly the only men of the Brethren of Tortuga and the Buccaneers of Port Royal that were sailing around attacking Spanish cities. However, usually, when these groups were faced with similar setbacks, most of these companies dissolved or were captured. But Captain Morgan allowed neither. He kept fear from taking command of his men. He ordered food and water gathered, and then the men rowed their tiny boats along the shore. They soon came upon two small barks, which were tiny vessels but large enough to carry the loot and a few of the men. So this tiny fleet of two small barks and maybe as many as four canoes rowed hard 
against a current of one knot which would have added about twenty-four leagues a day to their voyage, but they rowed day and night until they had gone back around the peninsula. Now these ships couldn't have carried them home, but as long as they hugged the coast they would be sure to find food and water and, along the way, perhaps a trinket or two that they could add to their chests. In a letter written by Governor Moody Ford of Jamaica, dated 1666, he wrote of the expedition, quote, They then fitted up two barks and four canoes, took Rio Garta with thirty men, and stormed a breastwork there, killing fifteen and taking the rest prisoners, crossed the Bay of Honduras, watering at the Isle of Rattan, took the town of Truxillo and a vessel in the road, and came to the Mosquitoes, where the Indians are hostile to the Spaniards, and nine of them willingly came with them. They then anchored in Monkey Bay, near Nicaragua River, which they went up in canoes, passing three falls for a distance of thirty-seven leagues, where began the entrance to a fair laguna, or lake, judged to be fifty leagues by thirty, of sweet water, filled with excellent fish, with its banks full of brave pastures, and savannas covered in horses and cattle, where they had as good beef and mutton as any in England. Riding by day under keys and islands, and rowing all night, on the fifth night, under the advice of their Indian guide, they landed near the city of Grand Grenada. End quote. That's a brief and very British description of something that my modern mind can hardly imagine. That's 107 men on two barks and four canoes rowing around the Yucatan Peninsula and down south along the coast of modern-day Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, and into the Gulf of Honduras. They hunted and fished, and they drank stolen Spanish wine, and all the while they continued to row. By this point in the expedition, the men had been gone from home for more than a year, but, well, to me, they were living a fantasy. They were sailing the entire Caribbean coast of Central America, sleeping under the stars every night with a belly full of sweet Spanish reds and roasted venison, turkey, or fish, or tortoise. When they wanted some company, they found a town that couldn't refuse them and a brothel that wouldn't refuse their custom. When they happened upon a city, such as the city of Trujillo, they would enter the city and take whatever loot they could find. In Trujillo, as at that same town that they had taken the breastwork, the buccaneers stormed the fort, they ransacked the town, and they stole everything of value. And in Trujillo, they stole something they desperately needed, a proper Spanish galleon. So the buccaneers sailed east along the coast of Honduras and then turned south along the Mosquito Coast, which is modern-day Nicaragua. And so finally, they came to Monkey Bay. At Monkey Bay, they found another native enclave, who once again were glad to help in aiding these Englishmen against their Spanish overlords. Now the guides that the natives lent them led the Englishmen downriver to Lake Nicaragua, which is a massive freshwater lake in the west of Nicaragua. Look at any map and you can clearly see it down there in Central America. It's not as large as the Great Lakes in North America, but it's still a very, very large body of water, so big you can't even dream of seeing from one side to the other. So the buccaneers rode around the lakeshore, hunting and feasting and preparing for battle. Now when they finally went ashore, it was on the far side of the lake, near the town of Gran Grenada. Grenada was a large, old city, and very wealthy. It was at least two times larger than Portsmouth in England, and was home to at least three colleges, seven stone churches, as well as hospitals and monasteries and mansions. And most importantly to the buccaneers, it had at least seven companies of cavalry and on-foot militia. Grenada was the 
best defended town in the region, and the natives told them that it was nigh impregnable. However, Captains Morgan, Jackman, Morris, and Martin aimed to prove them wrong. In that letter of Governor Modi Ford, he continues, quote, Hiding by day under keys and islands and rowing all night, on the fifth night, by the advice of their Indian guide, they landed near the city of Grand Grenada, marched undiscovered into the center of the city, fired a volley, overturned eighteen great guns in the Prada Palace, took the sergeant major's house, wherein were all the arms and ammunition, secured in the great church three hundred of the best men prisoners, abundance of which were churchmen, plundered for sixteen hours, discharged the prisoners, sunk all the boats, and came away. This town is twice bigger than Portsmouth, with seven churches and a very fair cathedral, besides diverse colleges and monasteries, all built of freestone, as also are their houses. They have six companies of horse and foot, besides Indians and slaves in abundance. End quote. Now, something that he doesn't mention here is who exactly was marching into Grand Grenada. Now, we know that there were 107, perhaps a few less by this time, members of the buccaneer crew. However, their Indian guides did not come alone. As they grew closer and closer to the city, they collected more and more of their brethren. As they snuck into the city, the natives began to free and collect any native men, any African slaves, and any disenfranchised people they could until there was an army of over a thousand men marching through the cities who had very good reason to despise their Spanish masters. After those 300 best men, mostly churchmen, had been gathered up in the cathedral there, a group of the natives and Africans drew knives and prepared to kill every last one of them. However, Captain Morgan reminded them that the English weren't going to be ruling there in Grand Grenada. They were going to leave the city, and when they left, the Spanish would still be there, controlling the entire region, and if they killed these 300 important churchmen and civil leaders, then the Spanish authorities in the region would certainly send out parties and militias to destroy the natives there. So, the men who had drawn their knives stayed them. So these Africans and Mayans left the city of Grand Grenada to make a life in the mountains of Nicaragua. Now these men, the slaves, took all of the guns and spears and swords that they could carry to defend themselves. However, Captain Morgan took all of the cannon. He put those guns on board a ship that they found there in the harbor, along with their chests of plunder. They added to those new chests as they searched Grand Grenada for gold doubloons and silver plate, indigo, silk, and fancy clothes, comfortable shoes. Basically, they took anything that they took a fancy to that wasn't nailed down. They sunk all of the boats that were there to keep anybody from following them or leaving too quickly to raise the alarm. And then they took this small ship back upriver and returned to the Caribbean. In that letter, Governor Modi Ford continues, quote, At the end of the lagoon, they took a vessel of 100 tons and an island as large as Barbados called Lida, with a fine, neat town which they plundered. The air there is very cool and wholesome, producing, as the inhabitants told, all sorts of European grains, herbs, and fruits in great plenty. 
that five leagues from the head of the lagoon is a port town on the South Sea called Rayo, where the King of Spain has ships built for trading between Panama and Peru, and that there is a better passage to the lake by Bluefields River to the northeast, and another to the southeast through Costa Rica, almost to Portobello, a country inhabited by Creolians, mulattoes, and Indians, whom the Spanish dare not trust with arms. End quote. That is to say that Morgan and the Buccaneer crew took the northernmost river from Lake Nicaragua to the Caribbean, where they set sail north by northwest for Jamaica. By the time they were sailing that stolen Spanish vessel out into the open ocean, they had been gone from home for 21 months. They had had quite a grand adventure, and they were different men than when they had left. However, they were returning to a very different place. Next week, we'll look at that very different place, at the Port Royal that Henry Morgan found, and the next steps of Governor Modiford, Admiral Mansvelt, and the Pirates of Port Royal. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Tomer, Dan, and Skip, as well as those of you who have been kind enough to donate through the website using our PayPal. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you enjoy it, you should definitely go over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or check us out on Facebook or Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, we do really appreciate anybody that leaves us a review or a rating at iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or any of the places where you listen to the show. Most importantly, though, thank you for listening. Tonight